So Matthew chapter 13, beginning in verse 24, says, He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servant of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at the harvest time I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it is grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. All these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. Then he left the crowds and went into the house, and his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. He answered, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the children of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the close of the age, and the reapers are angels. As the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the close of the age. The Son of Man will send His angels, and they will gather out of His kingdom all causes of sin and lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear." The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be at the close of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Have you understood all these things? They said to him, Yes. And he said to them, Therefore every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. When I entered into junior high, there was a four-sport season. The, the seasons were a little bit shorter so they could get four of them in there. So he could actually, being as a young man, I could play football and then I could play basketball and then after that I could wrestle and then I could uh, go into baseball. I was planning on doing three of those things anyway, but I'd never wrestled before and wasn't really interested in doing that. But when basketball season ended and uh, came time for wrestling to start, my dad, who was real big on sports, came and asked me, he says, well, are you gonna, are you gonna wrestle? And I said, no, I wasn't gonna wrestle and, and, uh, I, that was okay with him. I think he said something like, okay, if you want to stay home and play with dolls, that's fine with me. But, uh, <laughs> and so I kind of let it, left it at that. And went on, and, but I had a friend that was wrestling on the team, and the more I thought about it, the more I thought, boy, you know what, I might like to do that. And so I went to my dad, and I said, Dad, I'm, I want to wrestle. And, and he said, nope, 
you only want to wrestle because I wanted you to wrestle, and I don't want you to do it for that reason, so you're not wrestling. And so I had to actually argue with my dad to get him to let me wrestle, and I finally got permission to wrestle, and so I went and signed up for the wrestling team and started practice. You had to have a certain amount of practices in, because they want to make sure that you're in shape so you don't get hurt. As it worked out, I would not get enough practices in to wrestle until the last wrestling match of the season. The other team didn't have a guy my size, so I won without doing anything. <laughs> forfeit. I didn't even get to wrestle in a wrestling match. And so I, I, you could almost say almost as good as missed the season. Got to go through all the grueling practices to get you into shape and everything and learn how to wrestle, but never got to wrestle in a match till the next year. But you know what? Wrestling would become my favorite sport. It was, in fact, the only sport that I would stay in all the way through high school. And I enjoyed it very much, but almost missed the opportunity in fact, kind of did that first year because of dragging my feet. Well, as we come into the book of Matthew at this point, we have been looking at a group of people that has missed an opportunity. John the Baptist first came along announcing, repent, because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Here he comes. I'm not the guy, but the one coming after me, he's the guy. Jesus came and had the same message, repent, because the kingdom of heaven is here. He was offering them the kingdom. And then he would send out his apostles and tell them to go out through all the towns and villages and preach, repent, because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And over the last couple of weeks, we looked at the Jewish leaders after hearing Jesus' teaching and seeing all of his miracles. Not only did they not accept the kingdom, but they said that he was doing those things by the power of Satan, which was the unforgivable sin. And so Jesus turned from offering them the kingdom turned to speaking to them in parables. And that's what we looked at last week, the first parable. Jesus started teaching them in parables and the disciples said, why are you doing this? Why are you teaching in parables? And he said, it's because it's for you to know, but it's not for them to know. A parable will reveal my truth to you. It will hide my truth from them. But we also see a little bit of a change, not just in the method of his teaching, but in the content of his teaching at this time also. As we look at this this morning, we're going to see through these parables that Jesus taught, all of them are about the kingdom. Remember the, the parable that we looked at last week? The meaning of that parable was, be careful how you hear. Because Jesus is changing his teaching method. People aren't paying attention. All their miracles right in front of them. They're not getting the point. Jesus said, you know what? Your ears are closed. You better be careful how you hear. You have ears to hear. You need to hear. It's the only one of the parables that didn't start out saying the kingdom of heaven is like unto this, or the kingdom of heaven is compared to this. The first parable was to wake them up, to say, look, listen, pay attention. The rest of the parables are about the kingdom. What is the kingdom like? And that's what Jesus is going to teach us as he taught them. He's going to go through different concepts of the kingdom. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. We're going to look at four different concepts of the kingdom that Jesus teaches through these parables. The first concept of the kingdom that we see is that we see that it is now a kingdom delayed. Remember, up to this point, Jesus' message has been repent because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He was offering them the kingdom. He was presenting himself as the Son of God, presenting himself as their Messiah, and they needed to trust in him, receive him as their Messiah, and receive the kingdom of God. Jesus looked at the miracles and He says, if I'm doing these things by the power of God, then the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, is among you. It's here. But you're missing it. 
So what has happened now is we start into this first parable. Let's look at what the first parable teaches. There's a farmer that goes out to sow his field and he plants his field. And then they go to sleep. And then as the field starts to come up, it has not only the plants, the good seed, but along with the crop, there are weeds. And so the servants come back to him and they say, why are there there weeds in the crop? Didn't you sow good seed? And he said, yeah, I sowed good seed. There's an enemy involved here. Somebody else came and sowed those after we went while we were sleeping. Now, with every parable, you always have to be careful how you interpret parables. Parables are a generic, true-to-life story that are meant to make a point. The thing you've got to be careful is, is sometimes people try to make every different little parts of the parable mean something or other. It really doesn't. They're usually used to teach mainly one point. And so in this parable, Jesus says somebody came in and sowed in weeds, and then the question, the crucial question, well, what do we do? Do we go in and pull up all the weeds? Jesus says, no, don't pull the weeds. Leave them there, because otherwise if you pull up the weeds, you might damage the crop while you're at it. Leave them there. We'll take care of it at harvest time. At harvest time, we'll gather all of it. We'll, we'll bundle up the, the weeds, and we'll burn those, and the crop we will gather in. But the point that he's making is this. His kingdom is not yet. You see, he's not going to occupy the throne, judge the people, separate the weeds from the crop, and establish his kingdom. Because that's what's going to happen when he establishes his kingdom. When you get toward the end of the book of Revelation, chapter 20 of the book of Revelation, that's what he does. He sits down, he judges the people, he separates the sheep from the goats, as he tells in another story, separates the weeds from the crop, and then he enters into his kingdom, ruling. But he says, now I'm not going to do that. Up to this point, he's been offering the kingdom. The kingdom is at hand. It's open to you. Receive the kingdom. They've rejected the kingdom by the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. So now it is not really being offered to them. And he's saying, now this is what's going to happen with the kingdom. Now we're not going to have the judgment and the kingdom. The weeds and the crop are going to continue together until the end of the age. Then I will separate the weeds from the crop and my kingdom will start. And so his kingdom is delayed. We see that a lot when we deal with John the Baptist. In Matthew chapter 17, the disciples ask Jesus a question. It's a crucial question. Because they're, everybody looking for the Messiah coming, they know that before the Messiah comes, somebody else comes. And the dis- disciples ask him about this. It says the disciples asked him, then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And Jesus answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. And so the disciples are a little confused when we get up to Matthew chapter 17. They're saying, wait a minute, before the Messiah comes, the scribes say, Elijah must come first. What is the deal with that? And Jesus says, That's true. Elijah will first come, and he will restore all things. But, he says, Elijah has already come in the person of John the Baptist. Now, John the Baptist was not Elijah. John the Baptist answered that question at an earlier date. But the Bible says that John the Baptist came in the spirit of Elijah. Him and Elijah were very similar. They were similar in in their boldness. They were similar even in their dress. They were very similar individuals. John the Baptist came in the spirit of Elijah, and John the Baptist also came doing the work of of Elijah as he was preparing the people to receive the Messiah. In Malachi chapter 4 and verse 5, it says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So that's why the scribes were saying Elijah's got to come first before the Messiah. 
In Matthew chapter 11, Jesus said this, For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John. He, but this, notice this next line. He says, And if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. So in other words, he's offering the kingdom to Israel. He says, If you will accept that, then John the Baptist, in the spirit of Elijah, did the work of Elijah to present the Messiah to offer the kingdom. But Jesus knew they were going to reject the kingdom. And that is why it was not really Elijah. I think when we get into Revelation, chapter 12, if I remember right, two witnesses show up on the scene. And that is most likely Moses and Elijah representing the law and the prophets. And that is when Elijah will come to prepare, to to share the message, to call people to the kingdom before the second coming of Christ. So as we look at Christ and his, and his message here, he's telling them that the kingdom of heaven is like that field. For now, things are going to go on as they are. And then at the coming of the end of the age, we're going to separate the weeds from the crop. We'll have that judgment. And then we'll go into the kingdom. So the first thing he teaches them about the kingdom is that it's not right now. It's going to be delayed. But we also see kingdom growth. He's going to tell them what's going to happen with the kingdom, how the kingdom is going to grow from this point. And with this, he uses two parables. One parable shows you the magnitude of the growth. The other one shows you the process of the growth. So first of all, he uses the parable of of the mustard seed. And he says the mustard seed, the smallest of all the seed. The point is this. You're taking a very small seed and it grows a great big tree. And he says the birds of the air will come and land. Some people have said, well, what do those birds symbolize? Those birds symbolize demons because they were what was picking up the seed off the previous parable. They don't represent anything. You know what the birds are? Showing you that it's a big tree. It's big enough for birds to come and land in, put nests in. In other words, it's a big tree. And that's the whole point of this parable. As he says, that which starts out very small is going to grow very big. And that's the growth that we see in the kingdom. Well, that's exactly what we see. As we look at the book of Acts, which is the history book of the early church, we see something that was very small begin to grow. Jesus started with his 12 apostles. By the time we get to Acts chapter 1 and verse 15, it says that that group of apostles counting them and other followers of Christ, is now up to about 120 people. And then the Spirit of God comes on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. As we look at Acts 2.41, it tells us those who received His Word were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Imagine if we got to see 3,000 people added to the church in one day at the end of one sermon. Well, that's what happened. This, this group that started out as 12 following Jesus had picked up to 120 through three-year time period. Now in one day is up to 3,000. And then in Acts chapter 2, verse 47, the last part of it says, And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So they were continuing to gain more and more people. More people were believing and coming to Christ every day. Which also points to the truth of Christianity and to the resurrection of the dead. Because you know where this is happening? Right in Jerusalem. Right where Christ rose from the dead. Right where the tomb was. That would be the hardest place to convince people if it was a fable, if it was false. But the, the church is growing rapidly at this point. And then when we get to Acts chapter 4 and verse 4, what's happened by this time is Peter and John go up to the temple. They're going up to pray. And there's a beggar at the gate. And they heal him. He is unable to walk. And they heal him. And he goes leaping around. And Peter gets to preach to the crowds again to say, hey, it's not me, it's Jesus. It's a power of Christ that healed this man. And what do we find happened there? But many of those who had heard the Word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. 
So at least 5,000 more people added on this day. So this pushes it in a very short amount of time. The church has gone from 120 to over 10,000 people. It's growing rapidly. And as Jesus told him in Acts 1.8, you are going to be witnesses to me after the Spirit comes. You're going to be witnesses in Jerusalem and then in all of Judea and then on over to Samaria and all over the world, to the uttermost parts of the world. And so they start that process. In the meantime, we find the Apostle Paul writing a book like Romans to the church that's in Rome and teaching the Christians foundational doctrines of the Christian faith to people that are in Rome. Wait a minute. Nobody, no apostles been to Rome. How is there a church in Rome when there's no apostles been there? No missionaries have been sent that far. Well, if we also look back at Pentecost, after Peter spoke, we find that Pentecost was a, was a celebration of the Jews. It was a festival time. And people would come from all over the world back to Jerusalem to celebrate the, the Feast of Pentecost. In Acts chapter 2, it says, Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And then it's going to go through and it's going to list a whole bunch of different places where people were from that were in Jerusalem that day that would later go home to where they lived. And way down at the end of the passage, it says, and visitors from Rome. The best we can tell, that's how there became a church in Rome. Because people that traveled from Rome to Jerusalem to celebrate Pentecost, they heard the preaching of Peter and the teaching of the apostles, and they accepted Christ. And then they went back home to Rome after the feast was over, and they took the gospel with them. And so churches started in Rome without an apostle even going there. And so while the apostles were starting to see the the phenomenal growth of the church in Jerusalem, it was already being planted and seeing growth in places like Rome, and I have to assume other places around the world as well. You know what? Today, Today Christianity is growing rapidly in places like China that don't even allow it. From this little group of 12 people who were what? They were fishermen. They were as the society around them noted, they were, they were unlearned. Nothing special about them. Fishermen, tax collectors by trade. It wasn't a group of kings of different nations or even chiefs of different tribes. It was just fishermen and tax collectors and ordinary people. And from that little group of 12 people, let's say from that little mustard seed, grows this great, huge number of people. This enormous church of Jesus Christ. So we see the growth. Now, how is it to grow? Well, Jesus pointed out that it's not going to be a top-down kind of a thing. Uh, we tried that eventually when Constantine be, decided to become a Christian and decided to set up Christian as the, the empire's religion. And we find that when it's a top-down kind of a thing, when the church has authority and tries to establish the church by authority, it gets corrupt. But Jesus said it's not going to grow that way. It's going to grow from the bottom up. It's going to, it's going to grow like yeast in bread dough. You put in a little bit and it works its way through the whole dough until the whole dough is leavened. And Jesus said, that's how my kingdom will grow. Jesus doesn't need leaders and famous people. In fact, the Bible tells us there aren't many of those among us. You know what he really needs? He just needs people like you, people like me. He just needs people that are going to live out their faith sincerely and genuinely within their communities and share it with their neighbors and their friends and their co-workers and their families. And let people see the difference that Christ makes in your life. And they'll want it in theirs. And that's how the gospel grows. That's how the church grows. You know, we often get this idea that, boy, this, this person that's famous, you know, maybe they're a great athlete or a singer or, a, you know, somebody in power, wealth, somebody that's out there that has a strong voice in our society. Boy, if God just saved them, what could He do with them? 
You know what? It's not always doing it. It's not what it can He do with them. It's what can He do with you. We need to be like that yeast in the bread dough. Impact, influence the realm, the sphere that we're in. And watch it grow. And that is exactly the means by which it has grown to the size that it is today. Well, not only do we see the kingdom delayed and the kingdom growth, we also see the kingdom desired. It's a very interesting passage. When Jesus begins to teach about the kingdom and people coming into it, He gives a parable of the hidden treasure and a parable of the pearl of great value. Both of them have the same point. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. So obviously with the legalities, you find something in a field that's not yours. It's whoever owns the property. That's who it belongs to. But apparently in this case, the owner didn't was not aware of its presence. And so this person covers it back up, goes, sells everything that he has to get enough money to go and buy that field. And he gets it. Same with the pearl of great price. This guy is a treasure hunter. He's searching for pearls his whole life. Finally found this one. Boy, this is the one I've always looked for. This is the one I've always wanted. This is a once-in-a-lifetime pearl. And he sells all the rest to get this one pearl. That's what we're like when we come to Christ. God puts within us a hunger. Remember back from the Beatitudes? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. It's one of our character traits. God God puts within our hearts, it's not there naturally, but God puts within our hearts a hunger, a thirst for Him. Oh, I've got to have Him. Think about it. Think about the day that you came to Christ. The day that you recognized that you were on the outs and your sin was keeping you away from God and that Jesus had completely paid for that sin because of His love for you. He died on the cross laying down His life, rose again from the dead in power to give you victory over sin and death. Could anything keep you from that salvation? No. You would give up everything for that salvation at that moment. When we look at the apostles, look at the example of faith that they left us behind. These people were people that were willing to go to their grave. Their faith was more important to them than life itself. They were tortured and put to death for their faith, but they would not let go of it because they knew there was something better waiting for them ahead of them. And that's what Jesus is teaching. He says when somebody gets the kingdom, when they realize what they found in the kingdom of Jesus Christ, they will sell everything. Whatever it costs, they will have the kingdom of Christ. It's describing that salvation experience. And that's exactly why Jesus talks to us as He already did in Matthew chapter 10. And He says, Whoever loves father or mother more than Me is not worthy of Me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than Me is not worthy of Me. And whoever does not take His cross and follow Me is not worthy of Me. Whoever finds His life will lose it. Whoever loses His life for My sake will find it. You see, throughout the Bible, our relationship with Christ, our relationship with God is shown as a marriage relationship. And what marriage relationship is satisfied with being number two? Jesus says, I, I have got to be number one in your life. I've got to be above everything or that's not faith. Now, it doesn't mean Jesus calls you to actually give up everything. By and large, He doesn't strip people away from their families. But you know what? Sometimes when somebody comes to Christ, their family doesn't really appreciate it, doesn't like it, puts pressure on them, and there becomes a wedge in the family. And you can't even lose relationships, family, friend relationships over the gospel. But if you're really trusting in Christ, if you're really entered into His kingdom, that's the price you'll pay. Because you know you're where you need to be. Christ is number one in your life. In the Gospel of Luke, 
three people in a row kind of came up to Jesus and said, I'll be your disciple, I'll follow you. And all three of them failed. One of them, it says, yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. And the idea in the language is it's not just say, hey, bye, and leave. It was uh, basically saying, I'll, I'll follow you, but I'll follow you later. You know, I'll, I'll serve you, God. I'll serve, I'm going to serve God, but I'm going to do it later. Right now I'm going to go back to my friends in my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. I remember I was at a Bible institute and there was a pastor there and another guy that was in a class with me and he was doing a children's ministry and I was too. And, and he said, you know what, every, every week after our children's ministry, I give an invitation. I tell the children, look, if you need Jesus in your life, you need to, if, if you need some help with that, you come forward and you come up here and I'll help you. I'll show you in the Bible how you can know that you have Jesus in your life, how you can trust Him as your Savior. And he said, the problem that I'm having is that i got kids that are coming forward every week. And so they're obviously not understanding that this is a this is a one-time life commitment. It's a one-time decision that brings you into God's kingdom. It's not something that you have to do every week. This older pastor that was there gave him some advice that that really struck me as odd at first. But the pastor said, he says, I'll, I'll tell you what you do. This week, when you give that invitation, I want you to give it like this. Say, everybody in here that needs to come and talk to me to make sure that you have Jesus in your life, you come up front. All the rest of you, there's cookies and Kool-Aid in the back. And at first, I was like, what? Offer them a treat to not come to Christ? Does this make any sense? But then he explained it. He said, if they really understand, and if the Spirit of God is really working in their heart, regenerating their heart, they are not going to pass up that salvation for a cookie. This is what the kingdom of heaven is like. When you recognize the value, you'll give up everything. That's what our hearts are doing when we're coming to Christ. He is supreme. He is first. That's the kingdom desired. Well, lastly, we see the kingdom consummated. We see the real similarity between this parable and the first one that we started in today. And as we look at this parable, the parable of the net, it says, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and he gathered fish of every kind. So we see the similarity. It's just like the weeds and the wheat. Gather it all together and then you sort them. And the weeds are burned and the wheat is brought into the barn. Same thing with the net. The net is thrown out into the sea and you bring back everything that it catches in the net. You bring that into the boat and then you go sit down and you start sorting them out and you pull all the good stuff out of the net and you throw away the bad. There's a judgment. And the children of the kingdom who put their faith in Jesus Christ and lived in that faith, they go on into heaven. They go on into the kingdom of Christ. The weeds, the fish he doesn't want, he says they go into eternal Torment. He talks about there being weeping and gnashing of teeth. talks about them being thrown into the unquenchable fire or the fiery furnace. And so again, he's speaking of judgment. That is what the consummation of the kingdom is like. The disciples were always were itching for the kingdom. And that's a good thing. And they figured it was going to be right now. And for a while, it was offered as if it could be right now. In Acts chapter 1, verse 6, the disciples ask him, When's the kingdom? Are you right now going to set up your kingdom? Jesus says, nope, not right now. You don't know the time. You're not going to know the time. It's not for you to know the time. You're going to be busy doing what I want you to do until the time. Well, but then in this passage, it describes what that's going to be like. There's going to be that, there's going to be that judgment. The wicked, which we're all wicked to start with, but have not received the righteousness of Christ accredited to their account through faith in Him, are going to be judged and forever cast into the fire. And the wheat... The children of the kingdom, 
that have trusted in Christ are going to be gathered into his barn. What's that mean? Gathered into his kingdom. The fish in the net, the good ones, gathered and kept. The others discarded, weeping and gnashing of teeth. You know, in our society, as we mentioned last week a little bit, we don't like to acknowledge the judgment part. But the judgment part is necessary because it's part of the character of God. God is a holy God. And because he is holy and he is just, he has to judge sin. He hates sin. Sin, And so those who refuse to have their sin forgiven through the blood of Jesus Christ will pay the price. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9-11, through 11, it says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. He says, look, we live our lives in sin. We're not part of the kingdom. We will be separated out. We will burn forever. But I, I, just, I just had to put this next verse in too because verse 11 is one of my favorite verses in all the Bible because in the context that we just read, he then says, and such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. That right there is the dividing line. You know what? All of us have lived in sin at one point or another in our life. Until we come to that point when we trust in Christ. And it doesn't mean you never fall or trip or fail again. We do. But we're cleansed. We're justified through Jesus Christ. Well, right now there's a, a movie out on the, based on the book The Shack. And, and we read part of The Shack. We didn't read all of it because we just kind of felt it wasn't worth our time after a little bit. There's a little bit of discussion right now on the, on the Internet and on radio and things about whether a Christian should go to watch The Shack or not. And I'm not going to tell you whether you should go watch it or not. Here's the problem I see with The Shack. I I would compare The Shack to The Da Vinci Code. Remember when The Da Vinci Code came out? And The Da Vinci Code was portrayed as historical fiction. What means it has a fictitious story, but it has a historical foundation. So it takes real historical events and then makes a, a fictitious story to go through those real historical events. But the problem people had with it was that the historical events in the Da Vinci Code were also false. The history wasn't true. And so it was confusing to people. It was deceptive. Well, it's the same thing with the shack. The shack claims to be a fictitious story. It's a made-up story. But it is supposedly on a foundation of a biblical theological understanding. The problem is the theology in that foundation is not biblical. And here's just one example. It's the only example that I care to share about it because I haven't read the whole book and I haven't seen the movie. But the part of the book that I did read has this example. There's a place in the book where the character that is deemed to be God makes this statement. It says, I don't judge sin. Sin is its own judgment. And I read that and I thought, are you kidding me? The Garden of Eden, the flood, Sodom and Gomorrah, the captivities, the cross, almost the entire book of Revelation, where we see God's wrath in the future being poured out upon an ungodly nation. This teaching of Jesus, there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. To say that God does not judge sin is about as far away from the biblical truth as you can get. I meet so many people that say, oh, I don't believe in a hell because God's too loving. Jesus is too loving for there to be a hell. He taught more about hell than he did about love. But he did it because of love. Galatians also says the same thing. It gives a whole list of works that are of our flesh, you know, sinful things that we participate in. And then it says that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. 
Ephesians, in Ephesians chapter 5, says you, you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetousness, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. And notice that just in three examples, in two of them, the Bible made very clear to say, and do not be deceived about this. There will be that judgment. But on the positive side of the story, in Colossians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, it says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. That's the gospel. The gospel is that Jesus Christ died and rose again so that we could be delivered from that domain of darkness and translated into God's kingdom. So when that day comes at the end of the age and there is that separation, there is that judgment where people do have to go to an eternity in hell and the fire or an eternity into Christ's barn, into His kingdom. You know, I was reading in a commentary by John MacArthur. He said, I recently read that the purpose of a certain Christian broadcasting organization is to be a good neighbor to a variety of listeners. The policy statement given to prospective broadcasters includes this instruction. When you are preparing your program for these stations, please avoid the fall using the following. Criticism of other religions and references to conversion, missionaries, believers, unbelievers, old covenant, new covenant, church, the cross, crucifixion, Calvary, Christ, the blood of Christ, salvation through Christ's redemption, redemption through Christ, the Son of God, Jehovah, or the Christian life. Then it goes on to say, These people listening are hungering for words of comfort. We ask you to adhere to these restrictions so that God's Word can continue to go forth. Please help us maintain our position of bringing comfort to suffering people. It went through and stripped everything Christian, everything about the Gospel, Everything out of God's Word, where is comfort if it does not come from the Gospel? What is the comfort of salvation and forgiveness if there's not a judgment that we're headed for? The people are trying to take part of God and let that be their God. That is not the God. As we see the concepts of Jesus' kingdom that He clearly communicated from His parables, we see that at that time and in our time, why does God not bring judgment? Why does God continue to let the wicked prosper? Because it's not the harvest time yet. He's letting the weeds grow with the wheat. So it's delayed. We see the kingdom growth as missionaries go out and as we share the gospel in our own community and the gospel spreads like yeast among bread. We see the, the kingdom desire. When people are brought to Jesus Christ, there's that hunger, that thirst. They will give up anything for him, that's the that's the connection that happens between us and God. Greatest commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your strength, and all your might, all your soul. We're not going to come to Christ without experiencing that love. And we see the kingdom consummated. At the end of the kingdom, there will be that judgment. There will be that division. 